I have a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, we can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can also listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 67 of History of the Marine Corps. Damn the torpedoes. Last week's episode covered a lot, and we discussed the famous battle between the Monitor and the CSS Virginia. We also discussed the first Medal of Honor issued to a Marine, a second attempt to take Fort Sumter, and the use of torpedo boats, and the death of Commandant John Harris. This week's episode opens with a quick discussion about how the Secretary of the Navy selected the next Commandant. We also get into the Battle of Cherbourg and the Battle of Mobile Bay. Thanks for joining, and let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. When Colonel Commandant John Harris passed away, the Secretary of the Navy had the responsibility of selecting an appropriate predecessor that could help advance the Corps. The first choice for this role was Lieutenant John G. Reynolds. Reynolds had the experience. He was a veteran of the Mexican-American War, commanded a battalion of Marines during the First Battle of Bull Run, commanded the Amphibious Battalion during the capture of Port Royal in South Carolina, and survived the sinking of the governor. However, during Harris's term as Commandant, he and Reynolds bumped heads, and Harris ended up court-martialing Reynolds for disobeying a lawful order of his superior officer. At the time, the Secretary of the Navy chewed out Harris for his decision of court-martialing Reynolds, not necessarily because he felt it was the wrong decision, but because Harris court-martialed Reynolds for disobeying a lawful order and immediately restored his duty after the trial. But the damage was already done, and Gideon Wells understood that the controversy of selecting a commandant with the court-martial on his record wouldn't be welcomed, so he decided on Jacob Zeiland. On June 10, 1864, Zeiland was promoted to colonel and appointed as the colonel commandant of the Marine Corps. We didn't cover Harris too much in previous episodes, but his tenure as Commandant wasn't anything notable compared to his predecessors. Before Henderson was appointed as Commandant, this role was more of an administrator. The Commandant would assign officers, approve leave, approve promotions, and oversee court-martials. Archibald Henderson changed that, 
and he had a vision of the Corps which he fought for daily. When Harris took over, his views on how the Marine Corps should operate didn't align with Henderson. Harris had a narrow view of how the Marine Corps should play a role with the current U.S. military structure, which minimized the roles Marines played. Henderson wanted the Marine Corps to be, quote, the military arm of the Navy, unquote. He strategically deployed Marines to support his vision and was seeing tremendous success with his strategy. On top of restructuring the Corps, Henderson constantly fought Congress on budget, increasing the Corps' strength and training for his Marines. Henderson argued that Marines should have a, quote, propriety of having established at headquarters a school for drill in both the use of the musket and of light and heavy artillery. Every practicable facility should be afforded to instruct them on all the duties of their profession, unquote. He also argued for comfortable and healthy barracks living conditions, with enough space for training. Henderson believed, quote, the same drill should be imported to every soldier, whether of the Army or the Marine Corps, the Marines having more than once taken the field with the Army, as in Florida and Mexico, unquote. Henderson wanted to centralize the Corps by instilling integrated organizations, command units, and training, but Harris didn't necessarily agree with his approach. He wanted those responsibilities to fall on the individual detachment, not the Marine Corps as a whole. Although Harris understood the importance of training Marines, he didn't see it as feasible. Quote, From want of accommodations and of numbers, we find it impossible to instruct the men as infantry and as light and heavy artillery, unquote. So in response, Harris focused more on assigning Marines to smaller detachments instead of maintaining the centralized training program, eliminating Henderson's hard work at creating a Marine Corps-controlled school. Henderson also understood that the value of the Marine Corps wasn't only to serve on naval vessels. He wanted to create a force that could be deployed to any location with any military force and would be successful. Henderson frequently volunteered Marines to serve with the U.S. Army during the Mexican-American War and the Native American Wars. Again, Harris disagreed with this view of the Corps, and he reserved Marines for more traditional service. I bring all of this up not to insult Harris but to highlight how the role of Commandant and the mission of the Corps wasn't exactly figured out yet. It was still evolving, and the next Marine who filled this role would dictate the direction of the Corps. It took a month for Wells to make his choice. After a lot of internalizing and questioning, he decided on Jacob Zylan. Zylan had a stellar career, and he was an excellent Marine. But Wells wasn't confident about his decision, and he wrote in his diary, Quote, there seems no alternative, unquote. Not exactly the support you want from your new boss. Shortly after Zylan took office, reports of a victory overseas hit the news. On June 10th, the Union ship Kearsarge discovered the Confederate ship Alabama off the post of Cherbourg, France. The Alabama was one of the most successful Confederate raiding vessels. It was staffed with an English crew and Confederate officers. By her side was the English ship Deerhound. The Kearsarge has been in the region for months, and her mission was to seek out and destroy Confederate raiders. The news of the Alabama residing in the area reached the captain of the ship, and he headed towards the Confederates' location, 
As soon as the Kearsarge spotted the enemy, Captain Winslow cleared his vessel for action. He waited until the Alabama was about 7 miles from shore, and then he approached within 900 yards of the enemy. The first shot was released at 10.50 by the Alabama. The Confederate vessel had the advantage, with her guns having the greater range, but this benefit was limited to its accuracy. The first broadside from the Alabama missed its target, and the Kearsarge advanced. The Union ship was going up against a tougher opponent, so extra attention was taken when firing at her target. The shots unleashed by the Kearsarge were slow, but accurate. As the Union ship advanced towards the Alabama, the Marines unleashed accurate shot after shot with devastating effect. The Alabama understood her fate, and the Confederacy tried to flee within the line of jurisdiction for her protection. Captain Winslow anticipated this move. He circled the Alabama, and he unleashed a final broadside into the Confederate ship. Shortly after this shot, a white flag rose, signaling her surrender. At 1210, the Confederate ship came alongside the Kearsarge, and the captain officially gave up his ship, which was sinking due to the damage it received from the battle. Twenty minutes later, she sank. But before she did, the English ship Deerhound pulled up alongside her, and many Confederate officers, including the captain, managed to escape to shore. The remainder of his men were rescued by the boats of the Kearsarge and taken as prisoner. Only 14 out of the 370 shots fired by the Alabama hit its mark, compared to the majority of the 174 shots fired by the Kearsarge. The casualties on the Alabama were 41. Nine killed, 20 wounded, and 12 who drowned. Only three of the crew from the Kearsarge were injured. In Winslow's report to Lieutenant Commander Thornton, he said, quote, The Marines fought the rifle gun upon the top gallant forecastle, under the charge of acting master's mate Charles H. Danforth. The action on our part was commenced by this gun, and its fire was rapid and effective throughout. The high reputation of their service was notably sustained by the Marine Guard of this ship. The orderly sergeant, C.T. Young, and the master-at-arms, Jason R. Watrous, also deserve special mention for admirable performance of their duty." Unquote. In the spring of 1864, Lieutenant Ulysses S. Grant arrived at Washington, D.C. The Confederate general, Robert E. Lee, targeted the North, and although the war wasn't going great for the Confederacy, they slowly advanced towards their target. By July, the Confederacy threatened the capital. A battalion of Marines, and a battery of howitzers, commanded by Captain James Forney, left Philadelphia to Maryland. Their mission was to open the railroad to Baltimore, which was in possession of the Confederacy. The Marines helped repel a second attack to the Gunpowder River Bridge, and on July 18th, the tracks for the railroad were just about complete. Confederate Major General Samuel French said this about the Union Marines after the attack, quote, the battalion commanded by Captain Forney attracted my attention by its fine military appearance, its discipline, and the admirable manner in which it was handled. The arrangements made by Captain Forney for the artillery to repel the attack threatened upon the station had a great influence in preventing one. The rapid manner in which the order concentrated the troops 
was obeyed by him, and the valuable and effective services performed by the battalion under his direction entitle him and them to the recognition of the government. Unquote. Around the same time Marines were helping with the railroad, Rear Admiral Farragut was planning an assault on Forts Morgan and Fort Gaines. He was on board the flagship Hartford with Generals Canby and Granger, discussing their plan. General Canby would support this joint expedition by sending in all the troops he could spare towards the fort. The decision was to first target Fort Gaines, and on the 4th, troops landed on Dauphin Island and attacked the fort. That evening, the Tecumseh arrived with reinforcements. At 5.40 the following morning, the Union ships Tecumseh, Winnebago, Manhattan, and the Chickasaw were ordered to take up their possession between the enemy and Fort Morgan. The purpose of this decision was to keep down the fire of the ships and the fort and set up a good offensive position against the Tennessee as soon as the Union fleet passed the fort. Farragut had the Brooklyn lead the charge since she had four chase guns and was fantastic at picking up torpedoes. This is where the captain gave his famous line, Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. The other ships followed closely, with the Tecumseh firing the first shot at 647. As the Brooklyn approached shallow waters, she stopped, which caused the ships behind her to stop as well. The Confederacy took advantage of this opportunity and targeted the Hartford and the Brooklyn. While the two ships were taking shots, a torpedo was launched at the Tecumseh. It hit its mark, and the ship sank almost instantly taking the captain and most of her crew with her. Farragut ordered in a boat to help rescue any of the crew. His squadron sped past Fort Morgan, darted through the torpedo fields, and entered Mobile Bay. As the fleet passed the fort, most of the ships were ordered to anchor when they were out of the range of the parapet guns. Confederate gunboats and Union ships continued to fight for the next hour, and by 8.45, the Union fleet had destroyed many of the enemy ships and had the Tennessee in their sights. One by one, the Union ships took turns attacking the Tennessee, and Marines were vital in this attack, firing their muskets into the Confederate ships' open gun ports. On the Hartford, two of the guns were manned by Marines, and they assisted in unleashing overwhelming fire against the enemy. The Tennessee wasn't a match for the Union fleet, and she struck her colors at 1000. Throughout this whole engagement, the Tennessee never fired a shot, and the damage was significant. Her smokestack was demolished, her steering chains were gone, and many of her port shutters were jammed. Commander Johnson of the Tennessee came on board the flagship and surrendered his sword. This battle was another important milestone of the war. The capture of the forts and the annihilation of the Confederate fleet caused the Confederacy to surrender control of this vital port. Union forces would remain in this area, removing the multiple torpedoes planted by the Confederate troops until as late as September 13th. But although this is an important battle during the Civil War, Marines are rarely discussed, despite playing a significant role in the Union success. Luckily for you, this show is called History of the Marine Corps and will highlight a few of their accomplishments. Captain Percival Drayton, who commanded the Hartford, stated, quote, The two afterguns were entirely manned by Marines, who under the direction of Charles Haywood, performed most effective service. 
unquote. Captain James Alden, commander of the Brooklyn, stated, quote, Captain Houston of the Marines fought his guns nobly and well, unquote. Lieutenant Commander George Brown stated, quote, The Marines conducted themselves with the usual distinguished gallantry of the Corps. Sergeant James Rontree is particularly deserving of this notice, unquote. Multiple reports from multiple naval officers gave similar praise to the Marines, and many Marines received honorable mentions, and a few received Medal of Honors during this battle. Sergeants J. Henry Duggan and Michael Hudson, Corporals William N. Smith and Miles M. Oviatt were recognized, quote, for conspicuous good conduct at their guns, unquote. On the Richmond, Orderly Sergeant David Sprouse was, quote, recommended for coolness and for setting a good example to the Marine Guard working a division of great guns, unquote. And Sergeant Andrew Miller of the same ship was recommended for conduct as captain of a gun in action. Marines Private Michael Murphy and W. Smith were killed during this engagement. Six other Marines were wounded. The morning after the Union captured the fort, a detachment of 25 Marines, commanded by Captain Charles Haywood and Lieutenant Sherman, took possession of the fort to stop the enemy from retreating. They would remain in that fort for 30 days. By November 1864, Union General Sherman prepared to move troops from Atlanta to Savannah, Georgia. His goal was to stop the flow of supplies from Virginia to Confederate soldiers in the South. A Marine battalion under Lieutenant George Stoddard was assigned to the U.S. Army to help with this mission. On the 29th, the expedition reached Boyd's Neck, South Carolina, and for the next two days, Union forces slowly advanced towards their target until they reached Honey Hill. The Confederate troops had a brutal defense set up and made their stand. Marines arduously fought their way through swamps, assembled into formation, and marched towards the firing line. They faced heavy fire by Confederate troops, but they held their ground. Leadership determined that advance was impossible, and after the Union lines sustained heavy damages, the Marines were recalled. A week later, the attack was attempted again by Union forces. U.S. troops would make significant progress, and Union forces came within one mile of their target. However, Confederate forces established another strong defense, and they repelled the Union troops. At this point of the war, Union military leaders decided to abandon the attack on the railroads and simply strike Confederate forces. The Marines and sailors would take the lead and plan to attack while artillery helped provide cover. On December 9th, Marines were deployed in a skirmish line. They patiently waited for the artillery unit to bombard the troops before sweeping forward. Union troops in the area fell back and allowed the artillery to clear Confederate forces. Other Union troops in the area backed off and allowed the artillery to clear Confederate troops. While this was happening, Marines and sailors waded through waist-deep, swampy waters and headed towards their target. The Naval Brigade moved to within 50 yards of their target and bombarded Confederate troops as well. As soon as the Marines reached their destination, despite being wet, covered in mud, and exhausted, they immediately attacked the Confederate troops. But at this point, artillery was bombarding the Confederacy, and in the confusion of all of this, no one told the Marines to withdraw and allow artillery to attack. 
Before Lieutenant Stoddard understood this situation, the enemy popped up from their trenches and cut off the Marines. Stoddard redirected his men to the swamps for concealment. He followed the banks of the stream, and the Marines were able to slip past Confederate forces. They fought a few skirmishes along the way, but for the most part they evaded most Confederate troops and reached friendly lines. As the year came to an end, the weather ceased further operation, and this plan was abandoned. But despite ditching this location, Union forces controlled Mobile, Charleston, New Orleans, and Savannah. The only significant port remaining was Wilmington, North Carolina. This wasn't a trivial location, and Confederate forces established a strong defense, which was guarded by Fort Fisher. President Lincoln declared this area as the key to winning the Civil War. This location was critical to the Confederacy's survival, and beef from Texas and molasses from Louisiana was sent to this location to provide the Confederacy the sustenance needed to keep fighting. The railroads in that area was how it was being delivered, and Confederate troops were ordered to hold this area at all costs. This would be the largest amphibious campaign ever conducted by U.S. forces up until this time. While Grant and his forces were heavily engaged with Confederate troops, General Ben Butler constructed an elaborate plan, which included packing 200 tons of gunpowder in the USS Louisiana and blowing up the fort seawall. Spoiler alert, this plan would fail, but the progress by Grant and the Union Army was significant in the victory of the United States. And when Butler's plan was being called off, Admiral David Porter led a second expedition. The second assault resulted in many Union troops landing and storming the walls of Fort Fisher, and by January 14, 1865, Union troops were on shore and ready for the final raid. The Union Army didn't request any assistance from the Navy, except for supporting fire. But Admiral Porter became obsessed with the idea that the Army needed support, and he sent reinforcements. Porter had a large naval brigade he assembled two weeks before this engagement. He sent 1,600 sailors and 400 Marines to support the Union Army. The Marines carried rifles, their weapon of choice, and were charged with capturing the parapet and eliminating Confederate soldiers garrisoned in the fort. Once this was accomplished, the sailors would step up and charge the cannoneers. Navy Captain K. Randolph Breeze would be in command, and he modified Porter's plan, and instead of having the Marines scale the walls of the fort, he had them prepare rifle pits to protect the advance better. Unfortunately, the sailors would have to face a plan that was almost suicidal. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll sum up the end of the Civil War. We'll go over some statistics and discuss how the American public felt about the war and its outcome. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman and Robert Massey. With the Civil War coming to an end, we're getting closer to the World Wars. I've been struggling with how I want to cover the World Wars. I have the battles and the key points I want to discuss picked out, but the details is the challenge. There are entire books dedicated to a single event, and the amount of information out there seems endless. This book is an excellent example of that. The Guns of August covers the first month of World War I. 
most of the book takes place in Western Europe. I like the whys and hows of war, and this book does an excellent job at setting the stage for the next four years. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.